Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. You can follow First Healthcare Compliance on Twitter at FirstHCC, or on Facebook and Instagram at First Healthcare Compliance, or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. On today's episode, we are speaking with Kristen Gardner, Director of Consumer Products and Markets at Life Image, a healthcare network for exchanging clinical and operational information, including medical images, about upholding HIPAA, ORC compliance, and streamlining patient access to medical data. Digital innovation is transforming healthcare. The federal government has recently made significant pushes to make healthcare more consumer friendly by creating easier access to health information and EPHI through technology. Healthcare providers have an obligation to conform to HIPAA regulations and guidance from the HHS, Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, around sharing data with patients that evolve alongside changes in the healthcare and technology landscape. So Kristen, thank you so much for joining me today on First Talk Compliance. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Let's get right into it. Let's discuss the common HIPAA violation of failing to comply with patient requests for personal health information, PHI. What are the requirements and implications of HIPAA in the context of patient access to personal health data? Well, it's a great question. And as most of your listeners likely know, HIPAA is a very large piece of regulation. So there's a lot to unpack there. There's a section of HIPAA that's called the privacy rule that specifically focuses on sharing information. And there's a subsection of it. It's 45 CFR and then a bunch of numbers after um, that really focuses on a covered entity's obligation to to provide copies of a patient's records to them in the case that they request it. And that regulation specifically has a lot of detail in it around um, form and format of the patient's choosing. So they talk a lot about if a patient requests uh, copies of their records, that their provider or the institution um, has an obligation to provide them that information in both the form and the format um, in which they request it. So uh, facilities are used to getting these types of requests. Uh, Patients very often will get some kind of imaging. For example, they have x-rays or uh, maybe they broke their ankle and so they have some imaging done there. And most facilities are accustomed to uh, giving this information to patients, but typically this has been done on CDs. But I think we'll we'll talk a little bit more today about this regulation specifically, while it does talk about form and format, there are also some some guidance in there around sharing data electronically specifically, so transmitting ePHI and transmitting ePHI via third-party apps that the patient may be using. So think of a PHR or just a healthcare app, right, that I might have on my iPhone. And the obligations for a covered entity uh, under that, as well as um, some specific guidance around what steps a provider is authorized to have a patient take in order to get that data. So it goes specifically into, can you, for example, ask a patient to drive in and give a wet signature on a form when they've asked for their information in U.S. mail? Can you 
uh, deliver them their information on a CD when they've specifically asked you to share it with uh, a health app on their phone, for example. So it goes into a lot of specifics around all of that. Well, how does providing data in the patient's requested format fit into the story? It's a really big component of the regulation that when we think about the patient experience at the care level, arguably has the most impact and patients are feeling it the most. I'll give an example. So a patient may have just had a mammogram or an x-ray done and they have a need, right? Maybe they're going to another provider for a second opinion or they're changing providers for whatever reason and they request that information. Most patients don't have a disk drive anymore. So if you think about your iPad, it doesn't come equipped with any kind of equipment that would allow you to use a CD. So patients are more often than not at this point asking for their information electronically. Some might say, can you email it to me? Can you send it to this app? So that it's in a format in which the patient can actually see it, use it, store it. The regulation is very specific about um, electronically maintained records. And if a facility maintains their records electronically, which uh, nearly 100% of facilities today do, if it can be um, transported electronically, if it's stored electronically, then that facility is obligated under the privacy rule to provide it to the patient in that format if they choose. Patients often receive their imaging data on CDs. I know that I have myself. Why is receiving data in CD form, for example, problematic? There are a couple of different reasons why CDs are problematic. First and foremost, uh, they are 25% of the time, they can be unreadable. So CDs are very easily damaged. They're not secure. Uh, they're physical media. So, so you've gone through this trouble of requesting your information, waiting for it to get burned onto a CD. You may or may not be able to use that CD yourself. And then by the time it gets there, if it doesn't get damaged or lost, it still may not uh, have the information that your doctor needs to provide you timely care. So we have, uh, there's a clinical, there's a care issue really, and that there are risks being caused by delays in that care. But then you also just think about the experience of that individual patient um, moving from one facility to the next. This creates a pretty significant burden. Yeah, I, that's true. I've had one area recently imaged four separate times because I've gone to several different doctors and each one of them couldn't read the disc that I had. So they were like, oh, we'll just make another image. And because they, they had their machine was encrypted. Oh, it's not reading it. Oh, we'll just make another image. Or it was very, you know, it was extremely time consuming, had to stand there for the another machine, the same exact machine. And it was just a real pain in the neck. And yes, then, you know, I'm will. carrying it around. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's deflating. It's frustrating. It's it's such an least, outdated yeah. technology. Right. Yeah, it, it's such an outdated technology. So mm -hmm. CDs and faxing are still commonplace in you know the information exchange space within healthcare. We've focused mostly, and we'll focus you know our conversation today primarily on sharing information with patients. But it's worth noting that many facilities today. Uh, still exchange information with one another for the purposes of patient care and continuity of care via U.S. mail or courier service to send CDs to one another. 
Can you talk about these challenges with patient data access and CDs and how they're exacerbated in breast imaging? When you think about breast cancer and breast cancer screening, this amount of frustration and the stress around the process of making sure that you have your records and that your doctor has everything that they need to make the best possible and most efficient, accurate diagnosis, this is just exacerbated when you think about breast cancer. So arguably nowhere else in healthcare will you find a larger population of people who are screening so regularly that is so dependent on imaging as breast cancer screening and mammography. 60 million women in the United States get regular mammograms. So we have this significant population where they are coming in uh, yearly in some cases, um, every other year and other cases, and are getting imaged on a regular basis for several decades. So you imagine over the course of 20, 30 years, how often you may change insurance, how often you may change providers, or perhaps move and want to go to a doctor that's closer to you. And that impacts the experience and the issue that this creates because as you move from one provider to another, it's imperative that that new provider has your history so that they can make the best decisions possible for you and they can have all of that relevant clinical information. But one in four women in the United States, when they go in for their mammography screening, do not have their prior mammograms available for their doctor. So you imagine the consumer experience over the course of 20 years, how often they may move, how often they might just need a second opinion or, you know, heaven forbid, the worst, you know, the scariest outcome of a breast cancer screening is learning that you have breast cancer and one in eight women in the U.S. will receive that diagnosis in the course of their lifetime. When you think about that kind of event, you absolutely want to make sure that your doctor has all of the information that they need. And when you're in that kind of treatment situation and you're facing a cancer diagnosis, uh, we know that you know women will have folders, these, these large folders full of papers, full of CDs that they've had to run around town to get and save. And there's just a significantly better way for uh, women in this country to get screening and to get access to their own information. Patients often change doctors and health systems. I know we were just talking about this, but what is the typical scenario then for a woman going to a mammogram appointment with a new specialist that may not have then her prior imaging on hand? And then what are some of the effects of providers not having prior images available at the time of an appointment? And then why are they so important mammography? Yeah, I think we should start with why they're so important in mammography, because this is not something that's well known. And before I started working in this space, this wasn't something that I was uh, made aware of. Right. Uh, just being a woman, uh, you don't it, this isn't something that's talked about really in your medical appointments, the importance of priors. It's important for everyone to understand that mammography is also unique, not only in the, the fact that we have 60 million women regularly receiving imaging, but that mammography and breast cancer screening is highly dependent on 
access to prior mammograms. Every woman's breast tissue is unique. There is no textbook picture of what a healthy breast looks like. Each and every one of us have unique breast tissue with different aspects to it. And so it's important that every woman has a baseline mammogram and that their doctor is able to take a look at prior imaging for comparison in order right. to be able to accurately detect any changes over time. So, uh, for example, the, it's very common for women to have a, a nodule or there may be a spot, right, we would call it, um, right. on, on an exam. So you see a spot. If that, if that radiologist is looking at that mammogram and has no context into mm -hmm. that woman's breast history and her unique breast tissue over time, they have no choice but to mm -hmm. look at that spot and say, this could be this could be something serious that we need to look into more where we probably want to either do more diagnostic imaging or a biopsy. You know, all they have is the information that's in front of them. However, that spot may have been there unchanged for the last 15 years. So it's not an issue. And if that radiologist simply had had access to that information, you wouldn't have a woman who is retested and having to go through the process of a biopsy where uh, she believes that she has cancer when in fact she doesn't. And you can imagine and empathize yeah. about the amount of stress that would cause. So breast imaging in particular is just so highly dependent because the unique nature of breast tissue for each individual, it's so highly dependent on having that history available. So so the consequences of this, right, so if one in four women are showing up to their appointments and they either or their doctor doesn't have access to those priors, two, that woman is 260% more likely to get that BIRAD zero and to be called back for more tests. After those additional tests, 95% of the time, it was a false positive to begin with. Mm -hmm. So they've gone through this significant experience um, and ultimately, it's showing a negative result, which is on the one hand a relief, and on the other hand, all of that could have been avoided by just having access to those priors. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, and my guest today is Kristen Gardner, Director of Consumer Products and Markets, Life Image, about the topic of upholding HIPAA OCR compliance and streamlining patient access to medical data. Why is meeting patient requests for prior mammograms and other imaging clinical data such a challenge for providers? You know, we see this a lot and it's a great question. Um, we recently actually hosted Dr. Donald Rucker, National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, and he was uh, speaking at an event with us and on a panel and he noted, you know, HIPAA is a good law, but it's been distorted over time and is sometimes used as a reason not to do things because it's it's misunderstood and is being misinterpreted. We find that uh, while institutions and facilities and covered entities are well-meaning, they are very focused on complying with HIPAA, uh, making sure that they are only transmitting in a secure way, only what they need to, right, just to make sure because no one wants to end up with a violation. It can sometimes, that can, that conservative approach is impacting the patient's experience and patient care and many times violating patient rights because they have institutional policies in place that are designed to cover the institution to make sure that they don't have a breach, that they're not releasing information in a way that would be a violation. 
But if we get too conservative, what you end up with is what we see most often today, which is institutional policies like those that you likely ran into that said, well, you need to come in in person and we'll give you a CD. But the issue is the regulation has continued to evolve, patient access has continued to evolve, and in particular, the federal government has really started to focus on this, and they recognize the rise of technology, and they recognize that the that patients need access to their data, the importance of freeing the data and making sure that patients have access to what they need. And so what you have is, not necessarily, there are not technological barriers here. So oftentimes it's thought that, you know, this is a technology barrier, I would have to install a bunch of software or there isn't a solution that would allow me to exchange, you know, data electronically with patients. That's just no longer true. The, the options are out there, the technology is here, it is being used, but what we find most often is that there are embedded organizational policies around how facilities share data with patients that just simply have not been reevaluated and updated with this new guidance that has come out, for example, in April of this year that's specific to EPHI and third-party apps or that that isn't in compliance, unfortunately, with the privacy rule in general, in that you know, providers are obligated to share data in the form and format of the patient's choosing. It's less about it being challenging from you know, a technology standpoint, and more likely what we're seeing, it, it's more about institutional policies and that this just hasn't been revisited in a while. And so I think it's important that uh, those listening and those that have compliance roles are going back and taking a look at these policies to make sure that all of the steps that patients are having to go through and the way that information is shared with them is in compliance with this regulation. Kristen, a lot of our listeners are in healthcare administration. What are some innovative strategies organizations are leveraging to give women more access to their digital health information? How can provider organizations better comply with HIPAA and meeting patient requests? And how do these improved practices impact outcomes and costs? I would first uh, recommend starting with taking a look at the current institutional policies that those in medical records or health information management are adhering to. What is the process that they are asking patients to go through to request their information? And then how is that information then shared? So I would first encourage everyone to take a look at those policies and I would even go a step further and say not to just take a look at the policies, but maybe uh, go a little bit outside the box and as a patient, go through the process yourself at your own institution. So starting with, is there any information about how to get your records on your own website? Is there a portal? What does that portal say? Is it asking for a fax? Is it asking the patient to send in a letter? So walk through the steps that a patient is having to go through so you can experience firsthand uh, what that process really feels like. So that would be a very interesting and I think important exercise. But there are a lot of organizations out there that are starting to recognize uh, that have 
they're starting to recognize the rise of technology and understand the value of sharing information with patients uh, digitally as they're requesting it. So there are organizations out there um, that have partnered with um, companies like uh, Life Image and Mammosphere, for example, but there are a variety of others that offer solutions that allow facilities to directly share uh, with patients using um, an email address, for example, or can uh, have APIs that they've built with different companies out there to help make it easier and make it more secure to be able to exchange these really complex records in a timely fashion. So I would, so it's really two things. I would first just take a look at what your experience is today for your patients and compare that with the regulation. And then also take a look at options for how might we make this easier, right? So if a patient does come in and says, I want you to share my mammogram with me via this app. What do you do? What options do you have in front of you? What policies do you have that would allow for that? And if some of that needs work and if there are holes in that, you know, those are different gaps to start to close. Okay, great. So besides patients, who stands to benefit from enhanced patient access to data? How does compliance with this HIPAA requirement affect payers, physicians or academic medical centers? Who do you think? Absolutely. There are benefits across the board. So for every stakeholder involved, having access to information uh, is critical. So we've talked a lot about the patient, but I think the first group that you noted was payers. So the healthcare payers are the ones who are ultimately, in addition to the patient, are the ones bearing the burden of the costs associated with patients getting re-imaged or cancers being caught later. So for example, if we take a look at, uh, you know, a patient has shown up without their information and they get re-imaged and they have a diagnostic uh, mammogram. So they're called back for a diagnostic mammogram. Those average about $450 a piece. If they have a biopsy, that's almost $2,000, that procedure, right? So you think back to that 95% false positive rate and it really starts to add up. The other component is that when priors are not available for comparison, cancers are caught later when they're more difficult to treat and more comprehensive and more costly to treat. So if priors are available, not only can the results be life-saving, but it can also be cost-saving. So we can catch cancers 30% 30, 30% of cancers can be caught earlier by having the priors available because there's not a delay in care. And we and the data shows a 12% reduction in cancers that have been caught after they're spread to the lymph nodes and are much more comprehensive. So from the payer standpoint, there's a significant cost savings here in not having patients uh, re-imaged and un- undergoing unnecessary tests and having their, their cancer caught later when it's more difficult to treat. The other group is, of course, physicians and the providers. They're expending a lot of energy uh, chasing down priors and sharing priors. So not only do they chase down this information for new patients, but as their patients seek care elsewhere, they're under obligation to share this information. And so they're expending significant resources uh, looking up the information, burning a CD, mailing that CD out, uh, shipping it overnight, or using a courier service. So you can imagine the operational inefficiency and the cost 
that's associated with chasing all of this information down. And for the physicians specifically in radiologists, they just they need to have the information. They want to do the best job possible, right? And they want to have all of the information available. So this problem really impacts them in, you know, having a, a woman show up and not having those priors. They know they're looking at an incomplete record. So they have no choice, right, but to call that patient back, which is not something that they want to do either. So besides the knowledge that the patients gain by the access that they have to their personal medical record, what about the financial benefit? Absolutely. So you think about uh, the patient, and I think it get back, gets back to the high deductible health plan. And, you know, we all have a different level of coverage and we all go through that process of having insurance. And we get back to those numbers that I talked about earlier. When prior exams are available, first, it cancers can be caught earlier when they are um easier to treat, more affordable to treat, and are less aggressive. And so the therapies can be less aggressive. So you think about that in terms of out-of-pocket costs and the costs of some oncology drugs, it can be, you know, 30,000 plus a month. The other aspect that we haven't necessarily touched on today, but that is important to note is we're also talking about, not only we're talking about redundant testing and the cost of that, and that maybe the patient may have to bear some of that if they have a high deductible plan, but also we're, all, we're talking about time away from work and commitments as well. So there's, there's a side cost here that's underlying in having to take PTO or sick time to take time away from work, to drive to the facility, to get, you know, a biopsy or even a diagnostic test might take an hour, hour and a half. Um, and so there, there's cost uh, in terms of, you know, some of the bigger costs when you think about uh, the cost of treatment or the actual cost of that diagnostic test. But then there's this third component of, you know, what is your time worth and time away from work and time away from commitments? Mm -hmm. That's so true. Well, thank you, Kristen. Do you have any other thoughts or advice that you wanted to leave with us? I think what I would just leave in summary is I would absolutely encourage everyone listening to take a look at the Health and Human Services website and specifically take a look at some of the expanded guidance that was released in April of this year around giving patients access to their data and in particular giving patients access to their ePHI via third-party apps. HHS and OCR have come out with very clear guidance around how this needs to be done, what providers are obligated to do, and also on the positive side as well, they've expanded on when a provider is liable if there is a breach. For example, if a, a patient does ask you to use an insecure app that's unencrypted, you know, are you liable? The answer is no. So they've really expanded on all of that to try to shed some light on this topic. So I would, in summary, just encourage everyone to go and take a look at that new expanded guidance and then to go take a look at your institutional policies to make sure that they're in alignment. And if they're not, to work to address those as quickly as you can in order to avoid a slew of OCR violations that stem from patient complaints around this. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate you coming and talking to our show today. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about our show on our programs page on healthcarenowradio.com. 
and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter on First Healthcare Compliance or at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at Catherine Short at FirstHCC.com. I'm Catherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind.